Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. STEM really matters because these disciplines likely influence the capacity of a nation and its population to thrive. A shortage of STEM-trained residents can create serious challenges in infrastructure, national security, the economy, and affect people's ability to participate in STEM-based policy and decision-making. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and here in our third season, we're exploring the relationship between HRD and other topics and disciplines, with the help of leading authors, researchers, and scholars. Today, our focus is on the relationship between HRD and STEM, and our guest scholars are Hannah Love of Divergent Science, LLC, Alina Waite of Indiana State University, and Jill Zareski of Colorado State University, all of whom join me for conversations recorded during May and September of 2022. Our episode today is structured into two halves. In the first 30 minutes, we look at what we mean by the term STEM and take a high-level look at its relationship to HRD. And then, in the second 30 minutes, we dig deeper into that relationship. You can find out all about the questions explored in the episode, the three guest scholars, and also the episode sponsor by visiting allbypodcast.com forward slash STEM. Talking of sponsorship, Human Resource Development Masterclass is only made possible thanks to the wonderful support of our sponsors, who cover all of the costs associated with the series and so enable us to release them free of charge to listeners like you. I encourage you to show your thanks by checking them out and letting them know just how much their sponsorship means to you. Today's episode is sponsored by Interpretive Simulations. Since 2008, students and trainees have used Interpretive Simulations HR Management Simulation, where participants are tasked to make challenging decisions at the HR director level in a simulated environment. Students must build a strong HR function at their simulated, medium-sized organization and wrestle with the challenges of staying on budget. The simulation makes the connection between concept and practice while students learn by doing. It comes with assignments, mini-cases and quizzes to reinforce core HR principles. If you'd like to receive faculty access to review the HR management simulation, visit them at interpretive.com and fill out a demo request. Right, let's dive into the episode. Welcome to our episode on HRD and STEM. Let's start by meeting today's three guest scholars. And first, I'd like to welcome Hannah Love of Divergent Science, LLC. Hannah has a PhD in sociology from Colorado State University 
and works full-time doing science consulting and science facilitation. Hannah has 12 years of facilitation experience and since 2015 has been using her skills in higher education to design team science trainings, retreats, and workshops for scientific teams. So welcome, Hannah. It's great to be here. And my second guest for the episode is Alina Waite, Professor of Human Resource Development and Performance Technologies in the College of Technology at Indiana State University. Alina is faculty fellow to the Dean's Office and a Fulbright Specialist. Prior to her academic career, Alina held a variety of leadership positions in Europe and in the United States, including the Director of Research and Development of an international company specializing in the design, development, and manufacture of medical devices. Welcome, Alina. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. And my third guest for the episode is Jill Zareski. Associate Professor of Adult Education and Training in the Colorado State University School of Education. Jill holds a PhD in Educational Human Resource Development and her research interests include non-formal and community-based education with emphasis on sustainability and adult STEM education. Jill was the 2020 recipient of the University Council for Workforce and Human Resource Education Assistant Professor Award. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Darren. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'd like to start off our conversation by exploring the term STEM so that listeners are clear on what we mean by that term, ready for when we dig deeper into the relationship between STEM and HRD. So what do we mean by that term? So at its most basic, STEM is an acronym that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And STEM education refers to teaching and learning in those fields. STEM really matters because these disciplines likely influence the capacity of a nation and its population to thrive. A shortage of STEM-trained residents can create serious challenges in infrastructure, national security, the economy, and affect people's ability to participate in STEM-based policy and decision-making. So as a result, we care about STEM education from preschool to higher ed through to professional and workforce development. And that definition of STEM as an acronym still leaves plenty of room for interpretation, particularly when folks are discussing what counts as STEM. So generally speaking, technology, engineering, and math tend to be pretty straightforward. Whether it's ed tech or precision agriculture, we can recognize it as technology. Similarly for engineering and math. But what counts as science is a debate in this context and numerous others. In response to this question, I want to claim my space or our space, if you will. I am a scientist. I do science, and my science looks like a lot of other social sciences. But it looks pretty different from physics and chemistry and agronomy. So what is it about the history of, of education or the history of work that has got us to the point where STEM has become so critical? I'm going to take this back to... Um, the space race in the in the 60s. I think I think that this was a post-war economic driver. I think that this was part of the United States and, and other countries um, navigating the the tensions in world economies and military components um, after after the wars that that our drive to be STEM, leaders thinking through like, what does it look like for a nation to be competitive on a global scale? What does it look like to have 
the national capacity and resources, including human resources, to, to compete in international economies and environments. How does a nation build capacity? In what areas might a nation aim to build capacity? And at the foundation of that, I think, is a lot of the science, technology, engineering, and mathematical expertise. Infrastructure, right? You need engineers for build buildings and bridges and roads. Um, you need computer science and mathematics for national security and an economy is driven by innovation and technology and manufacturing. And all of those things are driven by sort of a fundamental STEM expertise. So when we talk about things like outsourcing, in, in effect, we're outsourcing the low-skilled jobs to people in other places who will do them more cheaply. And what we're trying to keep are the very intellectual and high-skilled jobs but we need a workforce that can handle those things. So for example, I do a lot of partnership with folks in agriculture. And what we're finding is that most agricultural industry functions in rural communities that don't necessarily or struggle to have the STEM knowledge and expertise base to do the high technology work in those rural areas. Well, I'll jump in here. When we build bridges, when we start building dams and we start launching rockets, it creates other problems and it, it's connected to the natural resources. It's connected to how people get together and how they feed themselves and where they go for food. And then all of a sudden you have social problems. And in the root of social problems, we want to have a systematic investigation in order to figure out how do we even start to solve social problems or where do we, where do we begin? Because social problems are incredibly wicked problems to solve. I think you uh, hit it right there, uh, the tension between innovation and then unintended consequences. So essentially, innovation drives, you know, fulfilling our needs and wants to ease our uh, way forward, the human activity to make our lives easier, etc. increase efficiencies, the effectiveness um, but in so doing, we're also creating some unintended consequences. So therefore, STEM or technology can be the answer to some of those problems, but it's also uh, unexpectedly creating some of those problems at the same time. Absolutely. I, yeah, I love how you said that. I used to work in water conflict facilitation, and the director I worked under was an engineer. And he said, if we could engineer our way out of these problems, we would have done so already. And that's why we need social scientists. That's why we need facilitators, because it's the people that we need to work with to solve water shortages and other problems related to water. Exactly. And just the essence of development is perpetual. More development leads to more development. Uh, technology STEM is behind that and the competitive nature. Now we're not only looking at one company versus another company or within a country, now we have globalization competing all across the world. And again, this has heightened the competitive nature of human beings, of human activity, of organizations, all the way at the societal level where countries are competing. So where does that end? You know, it, it's perpetual. And therefore, technology is at the root of that, again, for the good, but also we need to be wary of uh, what we could be producing unintentionally. 
so it feels like that's uh, a natural segue into into exploring then the relationship between STEM and and work. And so obviously, uh, I want to get the conversation to a point where we start talking about STEM and HRD, but I'm feeling like a half step into getting there is to look at the relationship between STEM and the concepts of work and the workplace and and how that relationship has changed over the years. So, so, so how, how do you view that relationship? When we're looking at the relationship between STEM and concepts of work in the workplace, people are surprised when I present data and literature that has been through this systematic investigation. And I think that it brings them a sense of relief that somebody's here working on it because scientists want to have science to back up what we do. And one of my favorite things in working with scientists is that if I provide good resources, if I provide good literature, especially if it's from a good journal, they believe it, they buy into it. And if I work with a client over time, slowly they start sending me things. And all of a sudden we're in this iterative process of sharing science to team science knowledge, science to team science literature, and it becomes this absolutely beautiful thing. But to get it started, there's always this period of time where I have to back up what I'm saying every single time, like back up everything I'm saying to convince them that this is a science. I like the lens of science for scientists that Hannah brings to this. And I think sometimes, at least for me, it's easy to forget that often the hard part of my job isn't the science work. The hard part of my job is the people part, right? Um, that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share an anecdote um, that when I was teaching mathematics at, at Texas A&M, I had a colleague um, who was critical of some of the flipped classroom and active learning techniques that I was starting to bring into that space because it was a very traditional lecture-based department. Um, and, and she told me, and, and the reason I share this is because I think the sentiment is, is, is prevalent in a lot of STEM spaces. She told me the only way that I was going to be better at my job was to learn more mathematics. That, that content was the driver, that content is, is, is king, that the only way to be good at a STEM job is to have STEM content expertise. And what I love about the way Hannah brings her expertise to bear on this is that it's so easy when the content of your job is difficult to forget that the people parts of your job are difficult. And I think that's great to uh, tag on to the workplace essentially STEM is the backbone to how that space has evolved over time. So we used to work in a very physical space, whether it be outside farming or inside at an office. And now uh, through technologies, communication, for example, going from a telephone to the internet, now to Zoom after the pandemic, which has become popular, uh, we've now operating in a virtual space. So I think the nature of work itself, but then also the workplace has evolved over time. Again, underpinned by STEM and technologies that have enabled that to occur. Continuing on this train of thought, a lot of this comes from the fact that an individual 
can't solve a lot of the tasks or take on a lot of the problems that we need to solve as a society. We need the expertise of lots of different individuals, of lots of different disciplines. And so it puts us in these situations now where we can't ignore the fact that we have to work together. We used to be able to just go to the farm and you know drive the tractor, but now to solve the complex problems facing our world, we need teams to tackle them. And I agree. I think you just said uh, complex problems because as we've uh, morphed into more global societal issues, they have become more complex. And clearly there's not just one solution or one best solution. It's very complicated also to solve these. So it does take an interdisciplinary approach. I agree. You know, and even problems that maybe aren't about scientists necessarily, you know, even if we're just, if we're taking a product to market, you still need the people designing it, the marketing team, you know, you need different expertise along the way, even if they're not all scientists. So many of the tasks today in today's society are team-based, even if we aren't thinking of that as the primary focus. If I'm working in organizations, am, am I likely to use that term STEM? Am I likely to bump into it? Or is it far more likely that I will be looking at maybe the the T or the S as in I'm focusing in on the bit that's my organization or the, the core requirements of my workforce? Or, or is STEM as a concept something that is practically found within many organizations? I think maybe if you're a STEM professional, you may look at what you're doing as something STEM, but someone who's a non-STEM professional or worker uh, may look at the product itself that the company is developing or the service that it's producing or providing. So I, I think that word is probably used interchangeably, but maybe more invisible, probably to more people and organization than not. That makes sense. It's almost as if, I suppose, if I was in a, a tech company and I can't hire enough tech workers, that I see that as a recruitment issue or a development issue, as in how, how do I develop the employees I have by giving them technical skills? Um, somebody from the outside might look at that and say, well, this is really a, a STEM issue systemically. Um, and we could see it from education all the way through workforce development. Is that, is that, is that a fair way of thinking about it? I would agree with that, but I think, I think that's pretty common that industry would see sort of what comes out at the end of the STEM pipeline, um, but maybe not be able to see all of the steps along the pipeline that have have ended up with this is your pool of potential applicants and recruits and hires. Um, I think there's a lot that's happening behind the scenes in terms of supporting and training folks to fill those STEM-related jobs or, or to support STEM-related industries. And I think that blends well with uh, Hannah's mention of teams, that it begins early on uh, in earlier grades, going on to secondary school, uh, STEM training, on into industry, 
that people down the pipeline need to be looking upstream and vice versa, working together to make sure you have that developed workforce at the end of the day. So the companies can recruit who they need to fill those skills uh, jobs or, or to have the jobs with the skills they need. And I, I might be jumping the gun here, but to me, one of the distinctions is the science, the engineering, the technology, the mathematics, that's trainable. Like, that's something that is relatively easy to learn, but it's when you start to work together and when you start to figure out how are we going to combine what we know to solve a problem? How are we gonna combine what we know to get this product to market? That is where the challenges really arise today. And I think that's where the connection between STEM and HRD really explodes. Why don't we dig into that? Maybe that does give us that nice segue then into exploring the connection between STEM and and HRD. And and I, I was thinking really about the research theory and practice in STEM and how it influences the research theory and practice in HRD and whether this is something that is... Um, bi-directional as in is the relationship between STEM and HRD such that research theory and practice influences in both directions or whether it's a predominantly one direction what are your thoughts about that I, I do agree uh, for HRD uh, general definition if we want to break it down into training and development which is increasing the knowledge, skills, ability of employees and enhances their performance to career development or professional advancement of employees within the organization. And then also looking at the aspect of organizational development. So increasing an organization's efficiency, effectiveness and competitiveness. So looking at HRD from those three prongs, STEM is, I believe, symbiotic with the HRD. Essentially, people are at the intersection of STEM and HRD, whereas STEM helps humans meet their perceived needs and wants. But at the same time, the human resources are the people in the organization that are developing the goods and the products to serve others. So essentially you have STEM, you know, feeding off of uh, people's needs and wants and the competitive nature of organizations to exist who are trying to produce the goods and services, but then you need those STEM professionals that are going to produce those as well. So I think another way to, to frame the question of what is HRD and STEM, how do these fields relate is, is to ask the question, what does it look like when HRD people collaborate with folks from STEM? And if I take that a step further, an interesting reframing might be, what does it look to part look like to partner with folks whose fundamental way of understanding science is different from our own? So I'm thinking about some really concrete examples of how HRD might impact science. And um, Anita Woolley in 2010 published an article in Science saying that three things built collective intelligence. And I think collective intelligence is what 
we're going for when we think we're thinking about STEM and where we want to be. We're trying to build our body of knowledge. And one of the things she said that builds collective intelligence is turn-taking and practicing even turn-taking. And she doesn't go into a ton of depth in the article, but to me, the reason that turn-taking benefits everyone is because we're hearing all the different perspectives. We're hearing all the different ideas that can actually build the collective intelligence of the group. And so in just those two concepts, we've got this symbiotic relationship where the better, where if we're practicing active listening, where we're taking in, taking an opportunity to hear everything, we're developing better products or reaching our goals more efficiently. In your experience, how much of a connection is there between education and HRD in organizations? I'm just wondering like whether there's, in your experience, whether there is information flowing back into education out of these organizations that can inform the, the direction of STEM education. You're good. This is kind of one of my soapbox areas of life. So, <laughs> so um, during, I, during my first master's degree in student affairs and higher education, I did a lot of assessment work. And I was, I had a very strategic position to do assessment work. Um, I worked for, I was hired by parent and family programs, but I was located in the office of the vice president for student affairs. And I did a lot of work with the head of assessment because I was interested in assessment. And we would send out assessments immediately after what I'm going to call an intervention. So immediately after a program ended, immediately after the end of the semester. And I challenged him one day and I said, I, I don't think this really captures the true essence because we keep saying we're invested in long time learning, but you can't assess immediately after the program and say that we achieved that goal. And so this sent me on an entire journey and I ended up at the Career Center and they had a quote alumni survey in quote, and uh, they also collected data upon graduation. And this eventually led me to the sociology program and a second master's degree because I wanted to send out a survey to alumni. And it was an incredible obstacle to get the list, to get access to everything. And I finally got an alumni survey out to ask sociology students about their capstone classes. And at my program, they had three different capstone classes. And we kind of assumed that we would have similar results. Like we didn't think that we would have drastic differences, but the long-term impact of each of these capstone classes was just wildly different. And I think this matches well even with our conversation today. So one capstone class was a community-based research class where students worked with a community partner. And this class had like 100% across the board of this class taught me professional skills. I learned to be a member of a team, all sorts of things. And then we had an internship class. And that internship capstone, it depended on the capstone. Students who were filing papers and not engaging with others, you know, they didn't report long-term learning outcomes, but the ones that were really involved in projects definitely did. And then there was a seminar-based capstone and they didn't so much. And we were shocked by these results because we don't assess that. And the dean's office heard about my study and they hired me one summer to come in and do a survey of their alumni and to look at liberal arts alumni. And again, we were kind of astounded by different aspects of what we found 
And it was even hard to design and write the survey, decide what questions to be in it because people are not surveying alumni. The only area where you find a little bit of this is in engineering. They do some, there's a little bit in construction management, but for the most part, when you read in the literature about an alumni survey, you're looking at interventions immediately after, like you're looking at like a post-graduation survey. And so we have a huge gap in our literature base of, okay, we are doing this training for professional jobs. And then we send them out to the professional jobs and we never check in to see if we actually achieved what we said we were going to achieve. I think this is one of the strategic places for partnerships between education institutions and industry. Um, that, that when your students leave your high school or university or community college or certificate program that you do want to hear how they've done in their jobs, right? Not just that everybody is placed in a job, but that they have in fact learned what they needed to learn to be an effective employee and to be successful in their careers of whatever kind. And I think this is a place where um, it's highly dependent on the institution, the industry partner and the individuals involved. Um, and, and I'm seeing, you know, at my own institution and in partnerships with folks from College of Agriculture, computer science, um, that there is a lot of conversation about, hey, these students really know their content, but they're having trouble writing the business email. Or, hey, we need them to do a lot more of this kind of project work instead of that kind of project work because project A fits more with our company culture and product development style than project B. And so really having that conversation between educational institutions and industry partners, I think is, is key for um, creating opportunities for students to be workforce ready. And I think creates a lot of opportunity for us to think about what education looks like once people have left their institutions of formal learning, right? What does it look like to continue workforce development when people need more of the cutting edge information, but they're no longer enrolled in a program. So what does it look like for retraining or certificate programs or those kinds of alternative pathways or retraining that I think um, deserve a lot more attention than they get? So some of these internships or capstone projects, if you are in a technical field at the university, would be more aligned with a technical unit within an organization if you're helping that. So again, this is uh, enhancing or reinforcing the technical skills, but also missing those soft skills and the others that make for more rounded individual and employee for a company. So that's really a niche for HRD to jump in and become involved, you know, not just the technical partnerships going on, but also the HRD office and professionals trying to help develop the other skills as well, the leadership skills and the others that we talked about, communication, uh, presentation skills, et cetera. Yes. And to that, I would add, it's, it's those skills that Alina just listed, but it's also a thoughtful, high quality design for an internship experience right? That, that it needs to be the balance of the STEM disciplinary content and 
the, the interpersonal human soft skills, if you will. Right. And all of that needs to be built into a thoughtful, structured approach to an educational experience, even when it's embedded in an industry partner's offices or, or those kind of contexts, right? That, that there is opportunity for HRD professionals and educators and practitioners to not just handle these two competing kinds of expertise, but to bring them together in a thoughtful way that supports the professional learning of students and current employees. And it extends beyond just higher education. So because I'm interested in higher education, I have this survey, have this data, and it definitely impacts my approach as a team scientist. And I did a post-team survey for a team that had a um, multi-million dollar five-year NSF grant. And at the very end of their teaming experience, I sent this survey to them to ask about what they learned and what was valuable you know, what they're going to take with them when they leave and asking a lot of those reflective questions that would parallel the things that I asked in the, my original alumni survey. And they, what they talked about were the soft skills. They talked about learning to work in a team, learning to work with difficult personalities, people they didn't agree with, people from different disciplines, uh, about presentations, networking. I think in the whole survey, I only had like a handful, like three or four, maybe, like I learned a software program. And those were typically younger um, members of the team that hadn't been involved very long. Everyone was talking about the soft skills. I don't know what else to call them, but I don't like calling them that because there's not much, there's nothing soft about trying to solve world hunger or (laughs) solve water shortages. There's nothing soft in there. We'll be back in a moment with more from Alina, Hannah, and Jill as we dig deeper into the relationship between HRD and STEM. First, though, here's an important reminder that this episode is brought to you thanks to the wonderful sponsorship support of Interpretive Simulations. Since 2008, students and trainees have used Interpretive Simulations HR Management Simulation, where participants are tasked to make challenging decisions at the HR director level in a simulated environment. Students must build a strong HR function at their simulated, medium-sized organization and wrestle with the challenges of staying on budget. The simulation makes the connection between concept and practice while students learn by doing. It comes with assignments, mini cases and quizzes to reinforce core HR principles. If you'd like to receive faculty access to review the HR management simulation, visit them at interpretive.com and fill out a demo request. Right, let's return to our discussion for the second half of the episode. Welcome back to our episode on HRD and STEM, where I'm joined today by Hannah Love of Divergent Science, by Alina Waite of Indiana State University, and by Jill Zaretsky of Colorado State University. And here in the second part of the episode, I'd like to dig deeper into three aspects of STEM that we touched on briefly in the first part, those three being the collaboration between HRD and STEM, navigating STEM teams and the implications for HRD scholar practitioners. So let's start off with the first of those by exploring how 
the STEM HRD collaboration is mutually beneficial and also what examples you might see of practical applications of HRD STEM collaborations. Thanks, Darren. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with with an example from my own work that I think illustrates some of these mutual benefits and and ways that a collaboration can be really constructive and productive. The example draws from my own work in collaboration with Native Bee Watch, B-E-E, like the insects, which is a project here in Colorado that helps train members of the general public to identify and monitor populations of native bees in their own backyards or in public gardens and other green spaces. And so I came onto this project because the entomologists and meliologists who are working on this project needed to train lay people to recognize bees, which everyone is pretty good at honeybees and bumblebees, but native bees can be really tiny and they move fast. And so there's this really complex set of skills required to find the bees, to distinguish them from flies and wasps, and then to narrow down a broad variety of native bees into their specific um, morphological categories. And so they had this really tricky training problem and they needed some help from you know, adult education and human resource development to navigate that process. And in that we realized how important photography of bees was. And so in, in later iterations of the project, we got our trainings up and running and things were going right great. And we were still like working through some questions around the value of monitoring and ecological data that comes from that and, and tracking volunteer correctness and, and metrics of training success. And we realized how important photography was as part of that process, that, that we couldn't be with volunteers all the time. And so we were asking them to upload photos and then matching their named identification to the photos they were sharing with us. And we realized very quickly that this is a huge amount of data that's really difficult for the project team to, to sort through and requires a lot of deep expertise. And so this is the point when we brought in some computer scientists who specialize in artificial intelligence and augmented reality. And so the next phase of the project is entomologists and me working with computer science folks to build an automated machine that can learn to identify bees in photos from volunteer data and uploads and then use that same machine learning to then train the next generation of volunteers. So volunteer data goes into the system and trains the machine, and the machine learning comes back out of the system and trains the next generation of volunteers. So we've got these really deep interconnections across content learning with entomology and bee identification, across technology and computer science with our machine learning AI and AR projects, and then me as the training and development specialist, navigating all of these different expertise bodies across the team and across our volunteer sets and across our student workers and, and other professionals who come with their own skill sets and abilities. And so through this, we're navigating really positive learning and training development processes for our volunteers. We're navigating high quality ecological data sets that can tell us something about population numbers and distributions of native bees in Colorado. And we're cutting edge technology in computer science, AI, AR. And so we've got such different expertise across these three you know, key groups in our team, all of it moving towards supporting cutting edge science, 
great human experiences. And I think this is, I mean, selfishly, of course, is my example, but really exciting to think about the ways that we are respecting one another's contributions and that the project doesn't work if we're missing any one of these pieces, right? You can't do the human stuff without me and my team. You can't do the key ecological work without the entomologists and the meliologists. You can't do the, the computer and technologically supported parts of this project without the computer scientists and, and AI specialists. And so we're really seeing how this mission critical project that has key outcomes related to sustainability, conservation, um, climate change mitigation um, requires all of us to be working really well together. And I think this is the big takeaway that I would um, invite folks to consider from you know, mutually beneficial collaborations is that the stuff that really matters uses science and technology in connection to a human experience of some kind. And I think that's where our collaborations really need to focus is, is how we all work together to leverage our expertise to create really meaningful work that's good for people as well. So, so listening to you there, Jill, makes me wonder about in, in a collaboration like that, how important was it for you to have a skill set around STEM, or at least a, a core knowledge base about STEM to be able to interact? Was there sort of preparation needed from your side to even be able to engage in a collaboration like that? Actually, one of my advantages in this situation was that I had zero the identification skills at the beginning of this. And so in the early phases of the collaboration, I was sitting in on the trainings that already existed with the volunteers. And by being a new learner in that context, I think that helped me really get in touch with who our learner target population was to be able to then help elevate the program to be even more successful and create an even better experience. So I think that's a space where not knowing anything actually worked out really well. And then I think the flip side of that is that I do have a computer science and, and computational mathematics background. And so that's been actually really useful in dealing with the computer scientists um, to have a sense of, of what it looks like for them to build something, um, to have a little bit of an understanding about what, what a programming process or a software development process looks like. So my answer is, Sometimes, sometimes it's it's good to, to land in one camp or the other, um, but I don't think that either is a deal breaker. If I had already known a lot about bees, if I didn't know anything about computer science, I think that being an engaged and curious collaborator, people are willing to help you get up to speed. I'd like to add to what Jill said just a little bit. So first, one of the things, Google did a study, an internal study on their teams, and one of the things that they said was important for successful teams was having clear roles and responsibilities. And so knowing, so if a team knows where their skill starts and the next person stops, it can actually be a really important factor to contributing to their team's success. It can prevent things like burnout, overload. There's a leveling of who has information and who has access to that information when one person's job starts and the other person's job stops. And an example I have of that is I was the project manager for a material science engineering team. And I'm a sociologist. I know very little advanced knowledge about materials science engineering. And um, they one day they were like, Hannah, go to the lab and do this. And I was like, 
no, 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 no. Like, I don't even have a lab. And they're like, no, it's so easy. You can go do it. And I was like, my grad lab has qualitative software on it. Like, I don't have the ability to go to a lab. But I knew it was so clear where my role stopped and where it started that I tricked them for probably nine to 12 months at this point that, oh yeah, I'm part of you all. But it was about clear roles and responsibilities. I feel like I lose credibility when I misrepresent what I know. That when I say, here's my stopping point, I feel more credible because I am being transparent about my skills and limitations. Um, And that feels better to me than posturing or pretending or getting myself on thin ice and then showing that I actually don't understand something the way I presented that I did. I always err on the side of caution in those situations. Um, And I also think that it goes both ways, right? We're talking about us as HRD professionals trying to engage in STEM conversations. I would say other folks get in just as much trouble um, when you're, you know, when you're a computer scientist and we're trying to have a conversation about training designs or plans, right? Um, I think plenty of folks get in just as much trouble misrepresenting their HRD and adult education knowledge base um, as we might getting might get in trouble representing our, our STEM content knowledge base. So I urge caution in both directions, I think is where I'm going with that. I uh, just wanted to highlight the importance of the example with bees that Jill just shared, because typically the complex problems, it's not just one solution, there are multi aspects or layers to solve the complex problems. And typically it'll take an interdisciplinary approach. So I think that's a perfect example that just shows that collaboration that's needed through STEM disciplines, HRD, you know, whatever group, a combination of lenses or perspectives to bring together to solve a complex problem. I thought it was great. So I mentioned earlier that there were three aspects of the first conversation that I was interested in to dig into a little, and that was the first of them, the STEM HRD collaboration. The second was around STEM teams and for want of a better term, probably navigating STEM teams or navigating HRD STEM teams. So I was wondering what advice you've got or what strategies or approaches you've seen work for for navigating in those situations. I'll hop in here. So in my consulting job, I'm on the ground working with teams and literature will say like, oh, try this or do that. But this is my top five. These are the five things that I think teams need to be successful. And these are practical. These are like the most practical things that you can do to have a successful team. The first one is even turn-taking. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're trying to solve complex problems as scientific teams, things that have never been done before. And we need the voices of everyone in the room. And I think this is especially important in the context of HRD and STEM, because we need to hear both of their answers and both of their solutions in order to actually get to something that's going to make a difference in the world. The second one are um, ground rules or conflict norms or team values. These have a lot of different words and it really depends on your team's culture, your university's culture, but this is where teams make their own rules about how they're going to operate. 
And there might be rules like, we're not gonna reply to emails on weekends. This is who you CC on the emails. It might be around listening, it might be around turn-taking, but these are the rules that your team is going to use in their everyday operations. The third is that teams need to have meaning and impact. People need to feel like what they're doing is going to make a difference. And if you don't, that's when people burn out. And that's when people don't participate and engagement falls off. Number four, clear vision. I think that when teams come together, they think, oh my gosh, we're all headed towards the same goal. But because teams come from different disciplines and because we're working together in this diverse environment, it's important to have a shared team vision. Number five is actually the one that I think is the most important. And Jill and I have a side project working on this right now, and that is psychological safety. Team members need to feel safe to say, hey, I don't know what I'm talking about. Can you teach me this? Can you fill me in? This is where my knowledge stops. Or it might be personal, like I don't have time this weekend to do this. Does anybody else have time? You need to feel safe to share your ideas. And again, Amy Edmondson um, wrote a book on psychological safety and she's kind of the person that we go to, but there are a lot of resources out there about how to create a psychologically safe environment. Well, I wanted, I want to ask Hannah about this too. Um, that, that, that one of the things I think has been more difficult for me on these interdisciplinary kinds of teams is, is navigating some of the touchy feely stuff, so to speak, right. To ask, um, you know, a group of soil scientists to talk about their vision, right. That they want to just get down to it. And I think as HRD scholars and practitioners, I speculate, I, I'm willing to, to put myself on a limb here that we might be a little bit more comfortable with some of the touchy feely stuff. And so I'm wondering if Hannah has any insight into you know, bringing in the emotion and the, and the feelings and, and perhaps even the, the embodied qualities of, of navigating a team. So I try to make it less emotional and much more practical and much more, um, a line we use a lot is we're going to make the implicit explicit. And so taking away like, oh my gosh, we're setting ground rules that we're going to get lunch together once a month and instead be like, you know, just get, getting down to it. Um, maybe saying we're going to do it fast and then we'll revisit it later. Maybe having people write or having a space where they can write and add periodically throughout the day, the month, the year. But again, it goes back to the facilitation of it. Um, as a consultant, I get to, I work with teams who want me there. And so that has really changed my interactions. When I was institution bound, their funding was based on participation. And so I've, always had this advantage where um, the stakes were high and the teams were willing to try different things. I'm also not above planting things in the audience. So one time I had a group that was incredibly shy for lack of a better word. And we took, we knew we needed to have ground rules. And so I wrote ground rules on note cards and I handed them out to people that I talk to before the meeting started and ask them to um, read their ground rule out loud when we ask for it. 
So I wonder then if that transitions us into the third area, because it, it feels like we're inching our way towards a conversation about um, preparing HRD scholar practitioners uh, for engaging with STEM. And, and I really like Hannah's five. And then we were starting to talk there about some specific actions that HRD can be taking in working with STEM teams. So I was wondering what action items you'd recommend for an HRD scholar practitioner who wants to engage with STEM? I, I believe this is a great question. And I think it begs the, us to think about digital transformation as an example. We're all arguably grappling with it, albeit to various degrees and some better than others. And data and digital technologies are at the heart of digital transformation. Thus, the notion raises important questions like, what is HRD's role in our data-driven world? What knowledge, skills, and abilities must be sharpened to not only confront digital transformation, but also thrive amid the chaos and the disruption? So HRD professionals must think beyond traditional forms of resources. Data are increasingly becoming a vital source of competitive advantage. And in this way, I think with a focus on STEM uh, can play a pivotal role in the digital age. And I also think HRD professionals can maintain a strategic seat at the table. So an HRD scholar practitioner who wants to engage in STEM might explore data and tremendous volumes of data are being generated every day. So data are created by things and people. Newer vehicles, for example, generate lots of data, which in turn can be put to good use. A future aim within the automotive industry through autonomous vehicles is to increase safety by reducing road accidents. And then people inherently generate lots of data. Familiar examples include biometric data and fitness data, such as heart rate and number of steps per day. Tracking these types of data lend insights into one's health and wellness, and employees and organizations alike can benefit. So an HRD scholar practitioner may also consider three perspectives surrounding data, including employees, organizations, and HRD professionals. So first, from an employee perspective, we could consider performance goals and what types of data are useful for measuring progress and how these data will be collected. And second, an organization, on the other hand, requires different forms of data to increase its efficiency and effectiveness and ultimately maintain a competitive advantage. A couple of questions we might ask include, how can an organization leverage teamwork and how can it promote collaboration? So for example, Jill just spoke about collaboration through our example with bees. Organizations are also increasingly mindful of their social and environmental footprints and what societal issues they can help solve, what sorts of data are required to address corporate social responsibility concerns and self-regulate. Third, I believe HRD professionals are in a unique position to liaise with STEM professionals. This requires them 
to pursue personal growth and activities that incorporate science, technology, engineering, and math. And it's with this increased understanding of STEM areas, such as data analytics and AI, that HRD professionals can in turn develop systems that enable employees to learn and transfer new skills to various job settings. And one last suggestion for the HRD scholar practitioner is to tie this discussion back to each of the four fundamental areas of HRD, individual development, career development, performance management, and organization development. For example, when considering digital transformation, how may employees' abilities and interests best match organizational needs? What activities may be most beneficial in career planning? What may a mentoring system look like? And what change interventions are needed to take advantage of future opportunities? So in summary, digital transformation, I think, is an area that's ripe with opportunities for HRD research and practice. I really like the data piece there because it takes me back to an episode that, uh, from earlier in the series where we looked at HRD and data analytics. And we heard there from Claire Gubbins and from Peter Gray and from Chad Chungil Chai. And there was a really interesting conversation in that episode about how HRD professionals are often unprepared for analyzing data in organizations or for finding the data that exists in organizations, or if they don't have the skills to analyze it, how to work with data analysts and data scientists who do exist in the organization. So how to have a conversation with them about what's needed. And so it links nicely, I think, back to the conversation that would be, was being had with, uh, with Peter, with Chad, and with Claire around that. So when you think about working with data and data scientists, do you think that's an example of where HRD education could be doing more to prepare HRD professionals for engaging on STEM issues and STEM disciplines. And when you take a look at HRD education programs, how, how well do you feel they're actually preparing HRD professionals to engage in data and, and other STEM-related issues within organizations? I think it goes both ways. STEM professionals and STEM education needs to do more to work with HRD and HRD equally needs to do more to work with STEM. This isn't a one-way street. And I think both fields need to be investing time, energy, and resources into how do we collaborate? How do we work across these boundaries? An example that is tangible and practical a group out of base, it's now based out of Michigan State University, has created a team science, um, team science toolbox. And they're a group of philosophers and they ask scientific questions that don't have an answer to them. They're very philosophical about methods and values and reductionism. And when teams start to work through these questions, you see this evolution of thoughts where they realize, oh, it's not that I'm right and you're wrong but it's, we need to have a conversation about this as a team so that we understand everybody's perspective and we have a better idea about where our boundaries are so that we can reach deeper levels of understanding to practically solve our problems. 
And so there are think, tools and things out there like the team science toolbox to, toolbox to help teams get beyond that. So Jill, Alina, both of you are in academic institutions in the United States that are doing HRD education. When you look at your own HRD education programs, how, how do you see STEM feeding into that? Or if you're not seeing much STEM feed in, what potential do you see for a greater emphasis on STEM within your HRD education programs? In our programs, I would say that a lot of this is really driven by student interest. Um, that, that by the time people are coming to the graduate programs in the School of Education at Colorado State, they are working professionals situated in organizations or other contexts. Um, and that is driving their interest in pursuing additional education and, and degrees. Um, and that's not necessarily a thing that we push. Um, and so that for me squares with what I believe about education, that, that it needs to be driven by student motivations and interests, and that our job is to create opportunities for people to customize the work that they're doing in our coursework and in their research. Um, but there are so many different flavors of HRD that I would be reluctant to say we need to press any one kind of collaboration or, or flavor, um, that the job is to give students the buffet and that they get to choose what they take from it to a certain degree. And I would support uh, what Jill just described. I believe the trend is more customizable uh, education, kind of stackable degrees or certificates so that they can get the expertise in the area that they might be interested in or go into. And so currently the curriculum is has been fixed and it is a process to change curriculum. I know data analytics, for example, is owned by another department, but that's not to say that our students may, may be interested in taking a course in a different program or department as an elective course. And uh, again, I think right now curriculum is being looked at very closely all across the country. Uh, with a lot of challenges for higher education. So I believe it's all kind of up for grabs and being revisited. And I think it is speaking to not only what employers want, but what the students feel that they need and why they came back to school. Excellent. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time for today's conversation. I wanted to say a big thank you to all three of you. The discussions really opened my eyes to the breadth of STEM then um, I will hold my hand up and say, I think I came into the conversation thinking about STEM very much from a perspective of education. So how do we educate people in STEM knowledge and skills? And I really appreciate the fact that during the conversation, what you've done, I think, is, is opened eyes to the fact that STEM is a much broader topic and it includes working with people who are in STEM disciplines and working with STEM teams and helping organizations work with STEM teams and so and, and much beyond. So I wanted to say thank you so much to all three of you. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for being a part of our episode exploring HRD and STEM. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to get to know you all better. And Darren, it was great to work with you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Darren. It was great to be here.
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Hannah Love, Alina Waite and Jill Zareski. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There were 22 episodes in the first two seasons and we'll be releasing a further 11 here in the third. Between them, they provide access to conversations with over 75 leading HRD scholars from around the world. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com and to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials. Also, don't forget to look into the episode sponsor, Interpretive Simulations. Find out about their HR management simulation at interpretive.com. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode, when we'll be exploring the relationship between HRD and sustainability, with the help of Matthias Bull of the University of Lincoln, Laura Birma of the University of Georgia, and Isabel Rimanozzi, author of the book, The Sustainability Mindset Principles. Until then, this is Darren Short, signing off from the Human Resource Development Masterclass. Human Resource Development Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.